This is the Ridge Hunter Outdoors podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 34. I'm Canyon Clark here with Jeff Ryan, Scott Clark. Nate's not with us again tonight. He should be with us again next week. We'll see how that plays out. First of all, sorry about last week on YouTube. If you're looking for the video there, it wasn't there. I didn't get our cameras charged all the way, I guess. They died on us about two-thirds of the way through, so I didn't end up getting that posted. And then this week, it will be audio only. I'll put it on YouTube, but it'll just be the picture with all the stuff we got going on with a little bit of dry weather in places. I'm not going to have time to edit the video. So this is going to be audio only, but it'll still be good, hopefully. But tonight, didn't really know what we were going to talk about, but I think we're going to talk, um, go over like the start of archery and archery hunting at least when it got started to get popular, uh, when you guys got into it, and then where it's come from there, and then I thought maybe we could find something in there that would be a good way to continue to grow it, because it's kind of plateaued a little bit, seems like, over the last uh, 10 years or so. I think it's gained some popularity with social media in itself, with some of the personalities that are out there that are archery hunters, but it's still in a pretty specific demographic i think so anyway we'll start with where it all started kind of not necessarily archery like back in fred bear's day but i know jeff you said you started hunting with a recurve and then you can kind of talk about when you started hunting and then with the archery shop too but that would have been what the late 80s no that was uh 80 85, 86. So mid 80s. Mid 80s. <clears throat> I bought a, uh, I think it, actually, I think it was a bear recurve. I bought it off of my uh, PE teacher mm-hmm. in high school, Jerry Wilson. And uh, he had it and it was 40 pound draw. And it was all I could do to pull that back. Mm-hmm. And of course, back then, using the recurves, you know, you just went and got your wooden arrows over at your handy dandy Walmart store. Yeah. You know, we didn't know anything about all that stuff. And, and you put a pie plate on a big round bale, and if you could hit the pie plate, group them halfway decent at 20 yards, well, you're good to go. Mm-hmm. And so that's what, you know, what I started with. And then uh, a few years, probably a year or two later, I got tired of that. And Walmart, you could go and buy a, an old P, or well, not old, it was new at the time, but a PSE bow you know, for hundred bucks compound mm-hmm. bow. And so that's when I got into compound archery and it's kind of the same thing. You know, it was all new. You didn't know about matching arrow weight and draw length and all that stuff. You just picked it up and went and done what you did with it. And hope for the best, but yeah, it's a, it was quite a deal back in then. Those so days. at that time would bear have been one of the more popular brands probably. Yeah, it was probably that, one of the first ones. There wasn't that many brands back then. And then what did you, Scott? Uh, what was it? The early nineties? You start? We started getting the Indian bows. Eighty eight. Eighty eight. Eighty eight. Eighty eight. Well, no, we got into the business, and right. Indian was there then. But your most popular was still Bear. Uh, PSE Pete Shepley was. Uh, I don't. He may have still been in Mohammed, Illinois at that time. Uh, before he moved to Arizona, uh, 
those were the more you know like the three big brands back in back in those days there was a lot of companies out but um, not a lot of bow manufacturers right i know what, what was indian whitetails mm-hmm. that was a big seller when you first opened up yeah and of course me happened to be different <laughs> i bought a browning you know which that was that was a heck of a good bow back then oh yeah yeah browning was making a good stuff then yeah I'm not. They still are, I'm sure, but... I don't even know. Are they still making both? I couldn't tell you. I couldn't hear. The last one I saw was probably like a mid-2000s model yeah. that one of my buddies was shooting. Um, was most guys, like when you started, were they still shooting more of the traditional type bows, or was it... Like, when did it start to shift over to a lot of guys shooting compound, or did it kind of start out that way? Compounds really might start coming out when you say the mid eighties. I think that's a little bit behind. Yeah, compounds were out in the early eighties, yeah. um, or, or earlier than that even. But for the most part, in this area at least, there wasn't a tremendous amount of deer, which means there wasn't a tremendous amount of deer hunters. And the ones that did hunt hunted with shotgun. Mm-hmm. So you had your few of your you had a few of your guys that were hunting, uh, but I think expense was more than anything. Right. Uh, Recurves weren't terribly expensive. There's still a ton of old ones out there, probably 10 years, 15 years old at the time, yeah. you know, maybe even older than that, 60s models yep. that you could pick up for next to nothing. And like you said, you didn't match arrows. You found arrows and you shot them. Yep. So I think at the time, uh, it was most, most, most cost is why people shot what they shot to mm-hmm. start with back then. Yeah, like I said, I paid $40 for that recur, and, you know. You can't buy this. arrows for $40. <laughs> you can't buy broadheads for $40. <laughs> well, right, but, you know, back then, you're talking a 16-year-old kid. you got to remember, a minimum wage was 3 Well, right. $3 I don't even know if it was that much. So, I mean, $40 was. That's a lot of money <laughs> for a 16-year-old kid mowing oh, yeah. yards for $10 a yard, you know, $10 a week. Yeah. You know, and so, and then trying to put gas in his truck so he'd go, go hunting or chasing other kinds of tail you know they shouldn't be <laughs> either but, way yeah tail. either way uh, how'd that you work know. out for you uh, well we ain't gonna go there okay. fourth time is a charm well you know <laughs> first you don't succeed <laughs> try try again that's right <laughs> so well i think at least in this area the the explosion in archery came with the numbers of the deer herd yeah obviously um and then also um, expendable income helped a lot. Right. And about that time, um, you got to remember we, uh, the economy back in the, you're not going to remember this, can you? But the economy back in the 70s was in the toilet. You know, Reagan comes in in 80 and the economy's on the upswing and people start feeling good. When people feel good, they spend more money. One thing leads to another, the economy starts taking off. And it, so then you have, you know, Bush one, and then Clinton era. You have that early '90s or mid '90s era where they just, you know, there's tons of expendable income from the dot com bubbles and all those in the stock market. So mm-hmm. that's when uh, compounds really got to we be expensive, and people were paying expensive money for expensive equipment. But prior to that. You could even go to a pro shop, but but even as a pro shop, at least in this area, you weren't selling the most expensive stuff. You were selling things that people needed. Yeah, 
you go to, you know, people were buying a $15 site that had three pins. Mm -hmm. They weren't buying the $45 site that had, you know, four or five pins and all this other stuff on it because they didn't need it. No. You know, so. <laughs> Back then, they was just steel pins with a little bitty bead on them. Well, that's color coded. Col but, well, it wasn't even glow in the dark. No, it's just they colors. Wasn't just right. color, you know, red, blue, yellow, green, whatever, you know, for your yardage. But mm -hmm. other than that, it's just a copper pin with a little copper bead on it. And <clears throat> I don't even know if we had peep sites when we first started. Yeah, that come well, on, and come along later. And in, in the late eighties, I knew we had. I know we had peep sites. So middle eighties and stuff. But peep sites were around with compounds. Um, the earliest ones. You know, had the rubber tubes yep. you lined up the peep with. Yeah, stuck. I got smacked a time or two. <laughs> well, you, you got that double-sided stick tape with the little nipple mm -hmm. on the end of it. You stuck on your limb. Yep. Got the rubber tube out. and Yeah. So, like you were just talking about the sights and stuff. I assume that came after the bows started getting better and stuff. They started making better sights, or did they start making better sights and better bows kind of at the same time? Well, they kind of had to... That part of it aspect had to follow along with how the compound bows was growing, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think it went hand in hand. <laughs> yeah, um, we had we had good aluminum aerials back when we had bows like what Jeff was talking about. Not everybody was buying them and spending the, you know good money for good aluminum, but they were there. Mm -hmm. um, Easton's been making aluminum aerials forever. Right. Uh, most people, you know, soaps, yeah, Easton, like in the baseball industry with bats and whatnot, but they're making aluminum arrows forever. You had charts. They matched up your, you know, your draw length and your draw weight and your aluminum arrow, and they had uh, all that. Um, but not everybody was spending that money yet. And so I think it just kind of grew together. As the expendable income became more and more, people were buying more and more, and they started making more and more expensive things, at least in, around here. Well, yeah, they started improving their products. And, you know, it just kind of however the market went. <clears throat> you know, with the – and I – to myself, I think everybody should start out with a recurve. I think that helped me more than anything because all I had – you had no sights – you know, you just had a flipper rest on the side of it, you know, and you draw it. And so you, which was basically a little spring mm -hmm. out there. Mm -hmm. It was just a little plastic thing yeah, that some, stuck out right, there. Some of them were plastic. Yeah. Had a little curl on the end so your arrow wouldn't fall yeah, off. You had a little brass knock on the, you know, knock holder where you put your knock at. Mm -hmm. That was it. And you used your fingers to shoot with, you know, and everything else was instinct. And I think practicing with that like I did and everything, that helped me tremendously mm -hmm. and then where i bought my compound you know my first compound which i said was just a walmart psc i think i paid 60 bucks for it you know and nothing wrong with that bow you know at the time and of course i think the draw or the percentage was like 50 percent let off Earlier ones were some of the early ones were forty. Yeah, it may have yeah. been forty. It wasn't a whole heck of no. a lot. Because at one time it was uh, sixty-five a, was maxed. I think it was a sixty-pound sixty-pound draw with forty percent let off. Yeah, forty was the lowest I remember starting out on a compound was yeah. forty. And so, but then you know you couldn't shoot wooden arrows in them, so mm -hmm. you, you had to go to to your uh, aluminum arrows. But still, you just bought whatever was in the rack at Walmart, you know, mm -hmm. and throw it in there and put a broadhead in or whatever. 
But still, I was shooting with flipper ass. And then wherever I got to uh, where I could afford to upgrade, I bought that Browning. And, well, that's whenever we started using the sights. We had the sight pins to peep sight. Had an overdraw with a kind of a early version of a drop-away rest, wouldn't you say? It was spring-loaded. Yeah, it was so, a spring-loaded yeah. rest. Like the... Two two T- wire problems. Yeah, wouldn't take the TM hunters. Yeah, yeah, but it it wasn't like that. Uh, you know, it didn't have the shrink tube on and stuff. It's just two wire mm-hmm. prongs up there, and when you shoot it, drop down, not completely, but it just kind of sprung down and mm-hmm. then sprang back up. <clears throat> but it was a capture rest nonetheless. But yeah, the overdraw. I mean, we had the overdraw down to. I think it's like twenty six inches or something. Something like that. Do you know Larry Stutz had a patent on his overdraw? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And so, you know, that's when the overdraws and all that was. For years, he was still coming around. He would get a little bit of money from them once he sold. Mm-hmm. And and then, uh, but I'm still shooting my fingers. Well, then the releases started coming out. And if you remember, uh, Richard Woods and all of them was kept telling me, "You need to use a release. Need to use a release. You'll be a lot better." And I was doing pretty good, mm-hmm. just fingers. And finally, I was like, "All right, let me try release." And so. I got a trophy hunter uh, wrist release with the two ball bearings and the mm-hmm. trigger finger on or trigger on it, and so man, after I shot that, I mean, it was yeah, world of difference. It's a world of difference. Yeah, minus it, it, that one hole in except, the light. Except the day that yeah, <laughs> you got to keep your finger out. Of that well, hole. I was drawing back, and I don't know. It's just me and him in the shop, and I forget. <laughs> I think we were setting your sights for your release. I think you just got it. I just got it. Just me and him in the shop, and he draws back, and, of course, he throws the bow in the air, you know, how you draw back. And kabam! And when the when the smoke cleared from the light, you know, the fluorescent light hitting the floor, he goes, I swear that wasn't me. I swear that wasn't me. I said, Jeff, it's only me and you in here, and I got a bow in my hand. <laughs> it wasn't me. It was the release. <laughs> That's where we start. Anytime you missed a target, you wrote your name on mm-hmm. <laughs> So, uh, there for a long time, there's a, a light fixture. You probably still got it. I got it. Yeah. yeah. It's in the shed. Yeah. A light fixture with my name on it, a perfect bullet size or arrow size hole where I'd shot yeah, like a 2216 size hole in there. Yeah. So, back up for a second on the overdraw. Explain that. What was the overdraw? Well, it used to, you know, uh, like the flipper rest. Let's just say, for instance, flipper rest. Uh, most people know what it, well, I'm assuming most people know what a flipper rest is. You know, it's just a plastic rest that you stuck there on the riser of your mm-hmm. bow. That's what held your arrow. And so you're shooting full length arrows. So if you put an over, if you bought an overdraw, it attached to your riser and it brought your rest back closer to you so you oh, could gotcha. shoot, so you could shoot shorter arrows and you could get more mm-hmm. speed right and at the time i mean if you had a what was the average speed it wasn't a hell of a lot less than 200 yeah if you had a 100 and a bow that would shoot 150 160 i'm guessing i can't remember now we didn't get the chronograph till later on but you know if you had a bow like that <laughs> you know and it could get that kind of results out of it. The only way you could do it was, was with an overdraw. 
Because you're shooting shorter and lighter arrows. Right, because at the time, they weren't making rests like they are now that already go ahead and sit back behind the riser. No. It was just right there on it. Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, the, the, your, your draw length, most people know, is measured from the front of your riser back to where you pull the string. And there was they would drill a hole in the center of the riser, and that's where your rest went, which meant that's as far back as you could bring your arrow. So the overdraw was at a, basically it's a piece of aluminum that you're that would bring that arrow length and your rest back towards your cables, back to closer to you. And so you got to overdraw the arrow past your draw length mm -hmm. was where that, where that came from. Yeah. Like I had like a 30, like a 30 inch draw length. Well, I could shoot 28 inch arrows right out of that due to the overdraw. Yeah. That makes sense. So, now we're getting into kind of a little bit more of the innovation. Do you think that as the popularity started to grow, like you said, some with the deer population, but more people getting into actual archery hunting, do you think that drove more of the innovation or do you think the innovation drove more people to get into archery? No, I think the 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 industry itself, the archery industry itself, done a fantastic job of marketing speed. And so the more people got into it, the faster they wanted to shoot. Says I want to be faster than you, whether I'm buying whether I'm buying a Mustang or mm. or a compound bow. So as more people got into archery, uh, the equipment wasn't anything wrong with the equipment. But if I sold you a bow for two hundred bucks and a half a dozen arrows for twenty five dollars and a release and a rest, and you might have three hundred bucks in the whole set no faster than they were shooting there wasn't a lot of stress on anything you, you replaced your strings i mean most people didn't even replace them once a year most people would shoot strings five six seven years eight years old so there wasn't any stress on the equipment so people could shoot and be a whole lot better than what they were with their uh, recurves mm -hmm. and still have fun and go out and kill some and but but the constantly spending money wasn't there i've got a 300 hundred dollar outfit that's going to last me until i either bend my aluminum barrel or at that time you got to remember i could replace the blades in my broadheads so you know my reoccurring cost was an arrow or two and some blades and i'm good so the industry i think done a fantastic job of saying hey jeff you need to shoot faster than scott mm -hmm. and then hey canyon you need to shoot faster than jeff so on comes this the only reason I need a new bow is to be faster. The only reason I need a lot of arrows is to be faster. Mm -hmm. The only reason I need this is to be faster. And then 3D shoots come along, and they've done a real good job advertising that. Well, you know, how do you judge yardage? If you misjudge a couple yards, how do you make up for it? You shoot it Speed. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, that plays a part in all of it. And then so you start selling these six, eight, $900 bows or, or more than that now. Uh, it's the only way you can sell them because you don't need that to hunt. Mm -hmm. So you think the people came first, and then the more the innovation after that. I think is, I think what drove it more than anything, especially in this area. You know, you gotta remember back then we didn't have a big deer population. I mean, how many weeks did we sit in the woods and not see a deer? You know, and as the deer population grew, and Illinois went. You know, they started their archery season in October mm -hmm. and ran it till January of the following year. You know, and the deer population grew. People had time, you know, and they got tired of just hunting. Back then, it was just six days of shotgun season, you know, 
Friday, Saturday, and Sunday one weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday the next, you know, well, they was wanting to get out more and do more, and archery was the way that they could do that. And mm. I think that's what kind of stepped up and speeded up the process, and that brought more people into the archery. Yeah, that's what drove the initial sales and the initial guys right. in archers, what you're talking about. What drove the continuing sales is, like I said, right. there's no reason to buy a new truck every year unless you want a faster truck. Mm-hmm. Yeah, bigger and better. Yeah. You know, everybody's looking for the bigger and better, mm-hmm. you know. and Which I've, is fine. No, yeah, I've, I mean, I've I've done it, you know. I, I bought a bow, you know, a browning bow, shot it for a few years, and then, well, then uh, High Country come out, you know, and they was faster bows, mm-hmm. more compact, didn't weigh as heavy as what that browning did, so I switched to that. And then as time went on, well, then I went from the – High country to uh, what did I get next? I don't even remember now. Thank you. You got a Hoyt. Did you get a Hoyt? No, I didn't get a Hoyt. Then it must have been a PSE. It, I think it was the PSE. Yeah. And then I upgraded that. No, I got the Bowtech. Okay. That's when Bowtech was getting popular. So I went from the high country to the Bowtech, shot it for a few years, and I upgraded to the PSE. And I shot it until my shoulder gave out and I mm-hmm. couldn't shoot one anymore. Yeah, and I think that's good. They're getting bigger and better in marketing that because that's what drives them to be better and to make better bows every year is maybe like 2021 to 22 going to be that much difference. Well, it depends on the year. Maybe they came out with something revolutionary, we'll call it, like uh, when we went from single cam to dual cam for speed or something, for an example. But it's good because the better the bows get, the more efficient we can become. Because like you said, you, do you need a faster bow to kill a deer to hunt with, or do you need a lighter bow or a smoother draw? No, you don't need it, but we just become that much more efficient. So in my mind, that does a couple things. Number one, it's more fair to our game because it does take away some of that margin of error. <clears throat> and number two, it helps get more people into it because it's a little easier to do. Not everybody's going to be able to kill a deer with the recurve that you started with. Right. The same people that might not be able to do it with that can do it with one of today's bows or a crossbow for that matter, um, which just makes it even more easy for those people, especially getting started or like in your case, like you said, when your shoulder gave out. But I think it's definitely a good thing that uh, we just keep getting better and better stuff. Now, obviously, with that comes the cost and all that, and there are a lot of gimmicks out there and stuff like that, but... That's the kind of stuff that drives more innovation, which just keeps making things better, like everything else in the world. But I want to back up again to kind of that boom in the deer population, because like when Dusty was on, you guys were talking about 95, 96 would have been around the time where we really saw that the first boom in the deer population. So what would have been kind of... What would have been the most popular setup at that time as far as like a brand or a type of bow? Were we starting to get to more where a majority of people are shooting compound now? What were kind of some new brands coming out, bigger oh, brands? virtually everybody's shooting compound everybody at that shooting time. compounds. Uh, uh, you had your, I don't want to say local brands. There were a few regional brands, and then there was a few big boys and national brands were Is were that there. when Matthews come out? Matthews was along. See, Matthew McPherson started with a McPherson, which was the single cam right. that he developed. And then 
had to sell that company off or went bankrupt or something in there. And then he started Matthews and then Matthews took off big time. Um, uh, he learned that marketing was where it was at. And yeah. So he the more money you throw at marketing, the better results. He marketed mm-hmm. Matthews far better than he did McPherson. Yeah. Um, while we're on that at one time and right about in that era, the technology of the speed and the bows outweighed the material available. Mm-hmm. At, at that time, uh, McMatt was saying that they had already engineered bows as fast as you could possibly shoot, but the materials weren't there for the bows to hold together. Well, now they got the composites and all that stuff is why you see in those 330 plus. But that's the technology that was, yeah, yeah that, that technology was there back then because he'd already decided that he was an engineer. They had maxed out on, you know, you can only do so much with this. Right. But but it wouldn't hold together. The materials weren't there. We seen that at the shop. Like well, this. no, I mean on a regular basis. <laughs> I mean, the, what was it? The, the screaming the, eagles? The, scre- the flying apart screaming eagles. Oneidas. Oh, the Oneidas, yeah. 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 I mean, uh, you know, the guys was shooting. You know, that that is up. an interesting looking bow too. Anybody listening to this, if you've never seen one of those, go look it up. You ought to, you ought to work on one. Oh, yeah, you ought to stand next to one when it blows apart. <laughs> yeah, no thanks. You know, they. Uh, I don't want to stand next to anything when it's blowing apart. That, they were a good example of the materials not being up to the technology. Yeah, but the guys was cranking them up to a hundred pound draw weight mm-hmm. to get the speed that they wanted. And every time they shot, I mean, it sounded like a two seventy going off right next to you. Mm-hmm. And well, it only takes the the composites that we had back then. You didn't even have any composites. No, right? I mean, it, you know, it would only take so much of that torque and abuse. Lamination yeah. was the closest thing to a composite. That's right, and it would splinter off pretty bad. Yeah. And yeah. every time they'd break off right, right there at the riser, right above your hand. And we were weighing them. You're still you're staying with that uh, five grain, five grains per pound mm-hmm. arrow weights and all that. But it just still they couldn't, they wouldn't hold up. Yeah, and nowadays you got guys that are shooting like guys that are physically capable of it shooting 80, 90, 100 pounds, no problem with yeah. the bows we've got now. I mean, they can do it, and the bows can handle it because, like you said, the the technology's there. Yeah. So I mean, there's guys that are doing, it, especially the guys that hunt out west a lot. And are shooting, you know, 50, 60 yards at elk that are drawing that kind of weight. We have those capabilities now because of that innovation and stuff. And just development of materials more so than just the archery industry. Because like you're talking about at that time, there just wasn't, you know. What was there around. was military. Yeah, right. The military had it, but we weren't available. It wasn't available to us. And I'm not knocking Oneida in any way. Right. I, I know Oneida still manufactures bows as far as I'm concerned or as far as I know. I don't know. I think they do. I think I've seen ads for them before. <clears throat> I know uh, on certain videos, I've mm-hmm. YouTube videos, I've heard people mm-hmm. talking about them. You know, I'm not taking away from Oneida. They was good bows, fast shooting bows back then. They just didn't have. Yeah. They was shooting faster and harder than what. Yeah. The guys, that, the guys that were staying within the limitations of the bow and staying with that six plus grains. Right. Instead of five. Weren't having any issues with them. No. The biggest issues you had with them were strings, and that was a very wearable item anyway. Mm-hmm. So if you paid attention to your string, kept it waxed up. And, of course, you got to remember, string materials have changed a whole lot. Oh, yeah. Since Everything then, has. too. Uh, they just re- you just replace the strings, depending on how much you shot. Yeah. Uh, of course, the guys that were coming into the shop at the time, they shot more than the people that didn't come into the shop. That's true. Uh, 
And so I think, I think uh, if one thing the, the equipment and technology's done, I think it's it's hurt the the shooter's abilities. Uh, used to you had to practice. Well, that's where we have to be more disciplined now because just because it is easier doesn't mean you shouldn't still put in the work. And like you said, it probably wouldn't be a bad idea, even if they're not starting out hunting with them. If you had some kind of traditional bow to practice with, it's just going to make you that much better of a shooter, which makes you, again, that much more ethical and efficient when you're in the woods shooting the bows and stuff. So you still got to put in the time just because it's easier now. But we've hit on doing items in the Matthews. Obviously, PSE is still there. Bear still around. Botech. Botech coming in in the mid-90s then. Um, many others that stick out. When was High Country starting to become popular? Because they had kind of a short window of they were where they were pretty popular. They had they? the split limbs. That's what High Country came. Uh, we, we took on High Country in the shop in about 89, maybe. Somewhere in there. Uh, they were made in Tennessee at the time. And then they... They tried. They got into that speed thing. Got into some split limb thing. Tried to do some stuff with materials that weren't available, and it hurt them. Uh, it hurt their reputation. It hurt their company. Um, the split limb era was in there, and they tried to be the fastest and the greatest, and the, uh, the limbs wouldn't wouldn't holding up. Well, that's still. I mean, you can look back now and see what we've got. That would be where it all started. There's a ton of split limb bows on the market now, just you know, better designed and better developed and stuff. But obviously, that's where all that kind of stuff started. And last I knew, and it's been a couple years ago, High Country still made bows, and they were shooting like 390 plus feet a second, but they were just as loud as the old ones used to be. So they weren't that loud until they got into the speed. And the, uh, I think PSE might have been making split limbs at that time as well. But old Pete had enough, had deeper pockets than, uh, I can't mm -hmm. think of the guy's name that owned High Country at the time, but, and I don't think he put all his, all his monkeys in one barrel, mm. and uh, High Country kind of did. Um, good company to be with. I never had any warranty trouble out of them, but, you know, you can only break so many limbs before somebody's going to move on to something else, no mm -hmm. matter what the warranty is. So, were the, at this point, with the, again, starting to get more innovative into the bows and the more brands like the high countries and stuff coming in. Were more guys, were carbon arrows starting to become a thing yet, or was that still later? Or were most guys still shooting aluminum? Was it still a new thing, or was it even Carbon a thing arrows yet? came into play around here in this area when we started shooting in the big three, in the 3D era. Uh, mainly weight, uh, because... It was tough to get an aluminum arrow five grains per pound on your bow and and still fly good. Uh, they just didn't have the spine. And so um, carbon arrows came in in, in that speed era, uh, which would have been probably the early 90s. Because there's compound bows out for, for a long time. I mean, mm -hmm. compound bows are pretty prevalent in the early 80s, really. Yeah. But, but it was just a hunting thing. You didn't really shoot for sport too much. Um, you, you, you did if, if you wanted to, but you're pretty much by yourself. Yeah. But the 3D era came along, and uh, that's when I think the carbon arrows took off around here. And it was 
again, it was more expensive than aluminum, so guys didn't always mm -hmm. spend that kind of money back then. But the guys that were shooting 3Ds that were really misjudging a little yardage here and there, it was worth it to them. So that kind of... And if you either broke it or it was straight. Yeah. So yeah. if you missed a target or if you hit a limb with a uh, with a carbon arrow, you're less likely to bend it than you are an aluminum arrow. If you missed it with aluminum arrow, you're out of luck. Well, yeah. I mean, if you remember how how many we had that tuner, remember? I mean, how many aluminum arrows did mean you retune after somebody smacked a tree or whatever with them? Right. Arrow? And then they got weaker every time. They every did time it. you retuned it, they got weaker. And so what was going on on the 3D range was kind of driving what guys were taking to the woods. So it was almost like a, not necessarily just a practice range for shooting and stuff, but almost like a development kind of thing. Like guys would take their carbon arrows and shoot yeah, them at 3D and realize they started, you know, they're shooting better and I can get away with missing most and guys still be able to use them. shooting two. I mean, most guys had two guns or 200, but they only had one bow. Mm -hmm. Right. So that was the same bow they shot the 3ds with was the same now i did know guys early on that would switch back and forth mm -hmm. that would shoot carbon i was one of those guys that i shot carbon a lot of times on the 3d range but then i hunted with aluminum mm -hmm. i just uh, i wasn't going to shoot 42 yards at a deer yeah. in, in the woods that i got to hunt in so i didn't you know i wasn't going to miss yardage that bad I wasn't going to miss, you know, 25, 30 yards. Well, he's usually lucky to see 25 yards in the woods that we hunting in. But I didn't, need the, I didn't need the yardage mismanagement, and no. so I liked the way the aluminums. Uh, aluminums were a little more forgiving in my mind, especially because I shot a little bit heavier broadhead than I did field point for when I'm target shooting. So I was still shooting the aluminums with a 130-grain wasp. Remember those? Yep, three-blade wasp. Yeah. And things you if you hit something, it's going to go through it. It don't matter. I mean, and so, but anyway, that was my setup. So I don't, I don't know that I was the norm at the time. I might have been, but most guys took what they hunted with and then went to the 3D range yeah. with it. I think that's a thing a lot of people miss now. Not to say there's anything wrong with the lighter setup if your bow's set up for it and stuff, but we've got into speed is not a bad thing, but. If you put it above everything else, it does, I think, can become a problem. And I'm not saying you got to shoot like a 700 grain setup, but like with the aluminum arrows and the bigger, heavier fixed blade broadheads, you guys are getting pass throughs all the time. Well, now even you watch these hunting shows where they're all sponsored by the fixed or the mechanical broadheads. And not to say that if you want to shoot those, you can't because there's some good ones out there. But if you're shooting a real little 100 grain broadhead out of a 300 grain arrow, and then that's your setup. You're not going to see the pass-throughs that you are, which is a more ethical way of shooting deer. I think we can kind of, I don't want to say go back, because they make good enough carbon arrows, heavy enough ones, that you can get the right setup and still see good speed and get a good balance of speed and kinetic energy and still get more pass-throughs and stuff and be a little more lethal than just all about speed. I think, you, I think you need to go to a chart and look at stored energy and kinetic energy and how one turns into the other, and then understand that you can only store so much energy in a certain amount of weight, mm -hmm. and then it becomes kinetic energy as it's moving. And so when you take an expandable broadhead, that takes X amount of that kinetic energy to open the broadhead, which is that much less you have to penetrate the deer. Mm -hmm. Now, 
depending on your setup, you might have enough excess. Obviously, there's guys that have enough excess to do it and get pass-throughs all the time. Not an issue. But if you're borderline, you may not. So you can take a look at your setup. There's charts out there all over the place that, that talks about stored energy and kinetic energy. If you're interested in it, take a look. Yeah, and that's not to say one thing's worse or better than the other or anything like that or knocking anybody's way of doing it. But you got to know, like what you said, what works best for your setup. And then I like to personally, a personal thing is I like to lean a little bit on the heavier side. It give, I think it gives me a little more room for error. Because in my opinion, no matter how fast you shoot, you're not going to beat a deer past 10 yards. And even sometimes at 10 yards, if they're really jumpy, they're still going to drop quite a bit. I would rather have that little extra punch if I hit them a little wrong. Maybe still get a pass through and get two holes in them or have a little bit more knockdown power in it than, than having just straight speed. But that's just a personal thing, too. That's not to say everybody has to do it that way because, obviously, I've killed deer with expandable broadheads and lighter arrows, and I've killed deer with the heavier stuff. So, But I do think that's one thing we could go back to a little bit and maybe benefit from. At least some people could. I know I, I did. I think I do better now with the heavier setup than I was shooting the lighter stuff with the expandables. Yeah, I mean, I've always been with fixed blade. Well, not always. Well, I had my well, I had that PSE. I can't remember what model it was now, <clears throat> but you know, I got it in two thousand and thirteen. I think it was. So whatever was hot and heavy back then. But uh, you know, I went with the Spitfire broadheads, mm-hmm. expandable broadheads, and that, and you know, was cranking out the speed, and I'd never shot a bow that fast before and especially with what was it 85 percent let off i mean probably i'm shooting 70 pounds and was holding nothing yeah once i got broke over right, you know? right. Mm-hmm. but you know and i shot a couple of deer with it and i mean they shot right through but you know i hit them right mm-hmm. i didn't hit shoulder blades or anything like that you know double lunged them and, well a kinetic and, energy is a combination of weight and speed exactly so but you know i was shooting i was shooting light broadheads and i was shooting light arrows to get the speed and nothing wrong with that i'm not taking away from it but like i told you whenever i got rid of that setup and because i couldn't shoot it anymore and i went to the crossbow i told you i want to get back to the mm-hmm. he- heavy broadheads heavy arrows and I I don't mind sacrificing a little bit of speed to get that kinetic yeah. energy. Yep. And and there are some mechanicals like the uh, I think it's a, one of the G5s over there, 125 grain. And basically, you know, even if they don't open up or something goes wrong with them, you've essentially still got a little bitty fixed blade broadhead, which is going to be enough again if you hit them right, which is what you're shooting for anyway. I think you give yourself a little bit more room for error on the other side of that, the cut-on-contact stuff. But then again, it depends on where you hit them. I think if you hit them forwards, you're better off to have the fixed blade. If you hit them back, you're better off to have an expandable with a little more cutting diameter. So it all just depends. That's why I said it's just a – more than anything, it's a preference thing. Right. And knowing it what is. works with your setup. It is. And, you know, uh, when me and Scott was hunting – you know, there's the Wasp 125s, I think. One, one thirty Or 130s. Yeah. You know, and plus we're shooting logs out of our bows, <laughs> yeah, you know. right. So, I mean, we had the knockdown power. And you're a little quieter, too, that way. Yeah, we didn't have the speed. You know, we had the speed at the time. Yeah. But, you know, you had a lot of knockdown power with it. And I guess as you get older, you kind of fall back to what you started on. You know, where... Uh, I got this crossbow off of you, and I told you. I said, I want to go with muzzies. Mm-hmm. 
you know, I'd shot muzzies before. I killed deer with muzzies and fixed blades, 125 grains. Mm -hmm. You know, that's just what I like. Uh, I'm comfortable with them. I have confidence in them, yep. even if I make a bad shot, you know, and so that's just. That's the biggest thing, too. You want to have confidence in what you're shooting. Exactly. But to, again, going back Not to a Not to a degree that you're going to make bad We're, shots. Right, right. But, you know, if something, yeah. if something messes up and say you hit that shoulder bone, mm -hmm. you know, well, then you have a little bit of confidence that, yeah, you're going to get my, Still, maybe knock through it mm -hmm. and get a lethal Which, kill on it. Like today, I'd be curious to know how many guys in their setups can tell you how much kinetic energy it takes to get a pass through on any given animal mm -hmm. and how much kinetic energy they have mm -hmm. when they shoot. So how much excess kinetic energy do they have to open those broadheads or to get that pass through or whatever? You know, back in those days, and you can look it up now, there's charts that says, if you know, to kill a deer, you need this much kinetic energy. Kill an so, elk, you need this. You so, know. okay, mm -hmm. I'm shooting this much weight, and it's flying this fast. This is my kinetic energy. Am I in excess of what I need to be? And back then, that was about everybody that I know knew how mm -hmm. much kinetic energy they had. Yeah. Because we had the weight scale, you know, we had the grand scales, and we had the chronograph. And, and the charts was out there then about what they recommended kinetic energy for different right. North American wild game. So, and I don't I don't know now if that's gotten lost or if it's just so there's just so much speed now that there's so much extra kinetic energy that nobody pays that much attention to it anymore. I would assume that's that's. I the think case. that probably has as much to do with it as anything. The bows have come so far. A slow bow now shooting three hundred feet a second, three ten. A slow bow in the $900,000 range is shooting 330. So you do have extra speed to play with. If you've got a lighter setup, you're still going to have enough kinetic energy to kill a deer. Yeah. Now, once you start talking about elk and moose, say, and the guys that are hunting those are probably paying more attention oh, to I it. Oh, I guarantee you yeah. they are. The guys you're asking them if they don't know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you know? Yeah. yeah. So, but to jump back to where we were at kind of in there in the mid-90s, so we were starting to see more of a, boom in the popularity of archery because of the deer population what about the media at the time was it i know obviously with the vhs tapes who was so i don't know how to word this dan fitzgerald <laughs> you're right so there was those guys right dan um, fitzgerald was a pioneer in his own right I and mean, the, he really was they were like the VHA, VHS Ragland. guys. Yep, Roger Ragland. The Drury's were the Drury pretty brothers were early there, in yeah. on that. Primos. Yeah. Yep. So well, Primos and his brother. Was there a TV channel at the time? Had No, heavens no. So there was no type of... Because I don't remember when TNN came around, and then I think even before that, maybe it was ESPN had like... They'd have like a Sunday afternoon Oh, those channels show, were but, there, but you might be able to watch... You got to remember... Uh, there was a lot of people, especially not town folk, couldn't get that. We it didn't have internet mm -hmm. or dish right. or anything like that. that. Yeah, and that's, you, you had yeah. antenna TV. And mm -hmm. so even the people that had cable, if you caught, if you were able to catch one or two shows a week, uh, you're a lucky guy. Yeah. But you had the VHS stuff at that time. Yeah. Oh, we was renting them. Yeah. We actually had, I, I, I had, I would guess in excess of, I don't know if a hundred. Oh yeah, yeah, you oh yeah. I had excess in excess of a hundred, maybe maybe excess of one hundred and fifty different tapes, uh, mostly deer hunting, some turkey hunting. 
Uh, you watched them when you were mm-hmm. a kid. Uh, we would rent them, and guys were, anytime you come out with a new movie, uh, somebody like Some Dan hog Fitzgerald hunting. or Hog anybody like that came out with a new movie, uh, people got on a waiting list yeah. to rent it because that's the only way they got their fix. Yeah. You know, Nate talked about getting your fix. That was the way. And then the, some of the older tapes that weren't written anymore, we just play up here at the shop in the loafing room, mm-hmm. just on a on the reel on the TV, just keep people in here watching. They may have watched it a hundred times, but they're in there watching it, you yep. know, again, uh, drinking a soda, eating a candy bar. Yeah. Hey, was, watch this, watch this. It was know? good times. I mean, yeah. those was, you know, and I don't know when did Bill Jordan and all them come out. They was, well, they was about that era, too. Had to be, because I think Michael Waddell started with them in the, like, late 90s as a cameraman so they were shooting shows and they would have been one of the first ones on probably espn and then the tnn as well as far as the tv goes (laughs) when that started to become more popular like you said you had uh will will primos and his mm -hmm. brother and uh and uh oh roger raglan Mm -hmm. dan fitzgerald uh we also had uh ralph and vicky mm-hmm when did the no. uh, Monster Bucks start to come out? Hunter, look that up. Look up uh, Monster Bucks 1. That was in the 90s. Yeah, because they're on like, I don't know what, the, they're still making them. Because that DVDs. was one of the first ones, or, I mean, not one of the first ones, but that was one of the ones we couldn't keep on the shelf because yeah. as soon as it come out, man. And they were one of the first ones that was like a compilation style of different guys. So right. it wasn't like you bought a... Drury Outdoors video. And all you're going to see is Mark and Terry. Right. Yeah. Or maybe a couple of their guys that hunt with them. It was like, you're going to see this guy from this show. You might see Mark and Terry one time, and then you'll see... Yeah. You know, oh, back then, if you got a Roger Raglan, it was all Roger. Yeah. That was same it. way of Dan. Same way of Dan Fitzgerald. It's 100% Dan Fitzgerald. And nothing taken away from them. No, no, that's great. what they you, did. You could learn a lot from them. Mm-hmm. I still enjoy watching their old videos on YouTube. I mean, it's just... Right. And that's... At the time then... And it's still the same way now. There was a lot of instruction in the videos, too, yeah. because it was still pretty new. Guys wanted to learn about how to hunt yeah. and be better hunting. There was a lot of instruction in the videos, as much as there was just good content of guys shooting deer. There yeah. were a few people had had a lot of experience back then. The Only the guys that had been hunting forever had 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 that much experience because yeah. most people were fairly new to the sport, five, ten years at the most. And and had limited success up until the mid nineties, early nineties. Did Jim Cromley make videos? I think he did, didn't he? I don't remember. I know he started the camouflage innovation. Yeah. And to this day, in my opinion, that's one of the best camouflages there ever was. The tree bark. Yeah. So I still have a tree bark overall, by the way. Yeah, I do too. I wear it early in the year in the year. Yep. So 1991 was Real Treat's first deer hunting video. This says, I think the first Monster Bucks, the best I could tell, was around 2000, 2002, somewhere in there. So it would have been right around that era, shortly after that. And then at that time, too, you're starting to get the internet, because the internet boom would have been the late 90s, correct? Oh, yeah. hell, I don't even have the internet now, so I couldn't do <laughs> Well, <laughs> what? Not, not at home. I got on well, my It was right after Al Gore invented it, I think. Well, yeah, yeah. right. So... <laughs> How much did you see? I'm still on antenna TV at home. I mean, how much did you see the internet affect the popularity of hunting? Not necessarily the archery industry, because obviously that affected the way people were 
getting information and purchasing stuff and all that. But as far as like the hunting industry and driving the popularity, did you see as much of a boom when the internet came around as you did like back in the mid nineties with the, just the deer population in the VHS tapes and stuff? No. So at that time it was not as Deer population was, was number one for something. Number one, but that goes back to early 90s yeah maybe late 80s is when the population really exploded mm-hmm. and it took a few years for uh you know guys to get up to that archery more deer guys are killing them with guns you go out there and you sit and you kill one used to you sit in the tree stand with a shotgun you kill the first thing to walk by mm-hmm. well then it got to where i killed the first thing to walk by and man i like to hunt now i can't hunt anything well okay i can go get a bow and so it took a few years for that to come around. So the population came before archery, but I think that was the biggest reason. Internet affected the industry more than it affected uh, the amount of hunters. It yeah. affected the way hunters bought and sold and viewed in information. Yeah, because at that time, I assume there wasn't. The internet was pretty limited compared to what we got now. So it was there was not as much content on there obviously as there is now but there probably was limited to no content as far as like a hunting video type thing i assume the next the next biggest thing would have been the transition into dvds and cds transition into dvds but the internet um guys got their information from your local pro shop or from your monthly magazines Mm -hmm. that was it if you're lucky and you got to remember you're still maybe only watching one or two shows a week Mm -hmm. and whatever advertisement on your favorite hunting video but most of the information came from magazines and your monthly subscriptions. Mm-hmm. Or, like I said, your local pro at the pro shop, you know, whatever information he had. And so what the Internet did was rather than that guy that's looking at new rests having to wait till that latest monthly edition came out and hopefully the rest edition had what he was looking for in it, mm-hmm. he could look it up on the Internet, and if that company was smart – they were throwing that out there. And so that's when the internet changed the way that hunters viewed information more than it changed the hunters, mm-hmm. uh, the numbers of hunters. I think also, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but don't you agree that when the archery started coming on strong, you had your diehard gun hunters and you had your diehard bow hunters. And so they were kind of at odds with each other. And then after they kind of meshed together, accepted each other, and became one, well, now it's gone to your bow hunters, your traditional bow hunters, as far as compounds and stuff, versus your, uh, oh, help me out here. The crossbows? Crossbows. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so, you know, it's... There were a few there's always a, There's always a little bit of tension yeah but it's friendly for the most part yeah it was but you know it's just you know you'd have i think that i think that the success i, th- I think the, the internet i think the internet the, the vhs's and the internet and stuff helped bring everybody together as a community yeah i think the success of the gun hunters forced them your your guys that were diehard hunters forced them to look at other ways to hunt right because like i said you go out there and you kill the deer on the first day, you're done. Yep. Period. It's over. So it forced them to look at archery in a different light 
Mm-hmm. And so it it wasn't it wasn't a riff very long. No, it didn't last very long. But there was was a riff there. And now for crossbows a while. had a, which kind of le- leads into what you were wanting to get into. You, you know, archery kind of plateaued out. Um, but but here, at least here in Illinois, forever you had to get a doctor's permission to shoot a crossbow. Mm-hmm. And then the, then then the local guys and and even some of the industry looked at a crossbow as being the bastard hunters. Right. Uh, you can't pull back a bow. You shouldn't be hunting. That's cheating. That's like a shooting a gun and everything like shooting else. Shooting a gun. So uh, you talked about plateauing. There was always that older generation that that couldn't participate in archery. Once you banged up your shoulder. Or once you got arthritis or whatever it was, which is where we're at now, that you couldn't pull back a bow, and you couldn't get a doctor to say that you couldn't shoot, you're done. You couldn't go. You couldn't bow hunt anymore. And so, I think only in the last and and this, uh, Tim confirmed this for me, the the local uh, game warden. That, that in the last few years since Illinois has dropped that rule and let, allowed anyone to shoot a crossbow, the numbers have went back up again. Mm-hmm. The deer numbers, the archery numbers in Illinois went up at the same time that those permits were, were available to everybody, crossbow permits. Right. Yeah, and it's not just older people, too. That allows a lot of younger people to get into it. Uh, yeah. Kids that can't pull back a compound bow at 35 or 40 pounds, whatever the legal limit is, can shoot a crossbow at... 400 feet a second plus and kill deer and it gets them into hunting as well and they have more time than just the youth shotgun season or shotgun hunting but i know a lot of guys from in the shop you know seen them for 10 15 years Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden didn't see them anymore they got to there where they just couldn't do it and so they had to drop out of it or get a permit you know a doctor's excuse and now you see them every once in a while, and they're shooting crossbows because they're able to participate again. Yep. But I don't want to get too far ahead because uh, where do you think the plateau in hunting numbers happened? Because obviously the we got into like the innovation of archery started to really come around with the numbers, and the numbers came from the deer population. Well, the innovation of the archery continued on. The deer population has been pretty steady high numbers, except for those couple years where we had the real big kill-offs, and they've bounced back both times, and where they've bounced back now. What years kind of do you think it started to hit that plateau where we it was had been kind of stagnant and still is not really growing like it did in that late 80s to mid-90s period? Would it have been shortly after that, you think, early 2000s? I mean... As far as you remember, what was it? I honestly don't know. Do you remember the like uh, the peak of popularity and when it started to kind of just stop? Being, I don't I mean, know that it's ever stopped. Well, no, but I mean it. It has not grown as rapidly as it did those that ten year span or whatever it was. I'd say. I'd say, maybe whenever the uh, crossbows became legal for everybody. I mean, I don't know. Help me out here, Scott. But, uh, you know, uh, I think whenever the uh, market and everything kind of reached its plateau, you know, like we said before, they've kind of reached a limit on as far as compounds on where mm-hmm. they can go. And, you know, the crossbows is 
I'm not saying they've reached their limit, but they're pretty close there too. Mm-hmm. And so everybody kind of knows what to expect. And then of course you got all the stuff that we went through with the blue tongue and all that, you know, and, and so we had an abundance of deer. Now we got, we had went to through a period where we had practically no deer. Mm-hmm. Now we're getting deer back, you know, so it's just kind of a balance there. I honestly don't know when that really hit. Just, I'm, th- I'm thinking, you know, um, mid, you know, like 2000. Mid 2000s, early 2000s. 2010. Kind of started to peak. 2012, you know, uh, Blue Tongue hit us hard in 2012, then hit us again in 2013. We started getting a little bit of increase. We had another shot at it you know another hit on blue tongue in 2015 now you know and i mean that's just locally here in this mm-hmm. area now the deer population start to come back i don't know this the only way that thing that makes it more popular now is with all this covid bull crap that we're going through mm-hmm. you know and so the prices of beef and pork and everything else all the other foods is going through the roof and so people's going back to Mm-hmm. hunt deer to fill the freezers with so yeah i think in my opinion it probably started to peak and plateau when it was no longer the deer population that was driving people to it because all the people that that was going to drive to hunting were already hunting mm-hmm. the media at the time everybody that at that added had kind of peaked because you went to the you went from vhs to dvds to tv and the TV shows got really popular in like the early 2000s. Mm. So at that point, you'd had everybody brought in that you were going to bring in from TV shows, at least most, the majority. And then we had, you know, that stagnant period from like the early 2000s to, you could argue now, at least within the last decade or so. And then I think the availability of media and the accessibility to hunting with the crossbows and stuff becoming legal everywhere. Well, I don't know about everywhere, but here, for example. And then, but the availability of media, because I don't think the hunting industry did a good enough job of capitalizing on the internet success and how much stuff was getting put out there. But now we're starting to see that with the YouTubes and the Instagrams and the TikToks and whatever else. There's so much more media now that I think that's starting to bring the younger people into hunting. So maybe... The accessibility to hunting and hunting content is the way we kind of grow us again, grow hunting numbers again. Right. I'm I'm reading an article here that says, uh, now this is just hunters, not not necessarily bow hunters, but uh, in in Illinois, for instance, there's 257 thousand registered hunters, and that's been dropping about two percent annually uh, over the last ten years. Yeah. Which would lead you to be, believe that we've peaked somewhere in the mm-hmm. late 2010-ish area. Yeah. And that's why, like I said, I think everything up to that point, we had gained as many as it, it had gained as many hunters as it was going to gain, whether that be the TV shows, the DVDs, the VHS, the deer population. And now again, maybe the fact that we're back up in deer numbers hasn't gained us that many hunters because the guys didn't leave because the deer numbers were down, at least not a majority of them. I think what's happening is probably the guys that are getting too old to hunt are just quitting hunting 
and we're kind of losing the top end and not gaining anything on the bottom end. And I think where we can do a better job of that and what we're starting to is the, the media side of it and the marketing of it and making it, uh, for lack of a better word, word, cool to the younger people to be a deer hunter in general with the social media stuff and the YouTube and, and availability that way. Because people my age and younger than me and up to Nate's age and, you know, mid-30s, a lot of them get their media uh, entertainment from the internet. I mean, they're not watching TV shows. DVDs are a thing of the past. Obviously, VHS has been a thing of the past for a long time. We're starting to see a better a better job. Damn, we're getting on. <laughs> yeah. The market is, you can only saturate so much of the market. So there's roughly 5% of Americans hunt. Mm-hmm. So that's a small market share to start with. And, and so to get more than 5%, you're not going to play to us old folks. I don't care how you market it. I'm going to hunt whether I ever see another mm-hmm. YouTube video or exactly. whatever. Mm-hmm. You're exactly right. We we as an industry and as as a hunting population have to play to the younger guys. We have to in, do a better job of recruitment in their media, whatever that yeah. might be. Yep. And the, Jeff's media was, you know, VHS. You put out a new video and you you get him to go rent it. Mm-hmm. Not so much for you. Right. And that's where I think. Even if it's just a YouTube video of a guy hunting that's really well edited and really well put together, that's going to get people watching just because it's entertaining to watch. Like, the entertainment value has to be there to begin with, and then they're going to say, you know, I like watching this, and then they get more into the sport maybe by watching it and they get interested in what they're actually doing. I think quality content in front of the people that need to see it in their medium is the way to grow it again because obviously the deer population is not going to do it like it did in the 90s. Like you guys both agreed that was the biggest thing back then that had the boom. Well, it's not. that's not going to be it now. No. Um, but I think that there's one small fraction that I think that, that can't be understated or maybe can't be overstated is the family, the core family as a whole in the United States is dwindled by how much? Mm-hmm. Bingo. Okay. Guys my age and my dad's age, their dads took them hunting. Yeah. You know, my dad took me hunting or was, you know, most dads took their kids hunting. I took you hunting. Okay. If dads didn't take you hunting, there was somebody like like Coach Wilson that took but, me hunting. But. You, know, you always had that yeah, mentor. There. You know, with the families today where there's not dads in that family whether those guys hunt or not they may not even be there now that's maybe just a small portion but it's your generation canyon it's your generation's job to take your kids hunting like i took you hunting well you look at it at that time like kids nowadays are just not interested in it because they have so much other stuff that's in front of them all the time that they can be interested in at that time it was well what's dad doing i want to go do what he's doing even when i was younger you know when we still didn't have it was nothing like it is now as far as the internet goes the internet drives so much of the world today that there's so much other stuff for kids to be interested in if they don't see that hunting stuff they're not going to be interested in it just because their dad is you know what i mean whereas when I was a kid, when you guys were kids, yeah. But when was, you're a kid, you still want to be like dad. I don't care who you are, you want to be like dad. So at that age, you tell them put their phone down, if they even have one at that age. Mm-hmm. Come on, let's go. 
Right. Let's get out here on a four wheeler. Let's get out on a side by side. Let's let's walk. Let's squirrel hunt. Let's hunt for sheds. Let's hunt for mushrooms. Let's go explore the stream or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Let's get out here and do something. That's what I'm saying. We got. They have to be introduced to it at a young age, and if they're not, because we've already missed a whole generation of people that are my age at that stage, but we can still get them with the stuff that they're interested in now, getting that stuff in front of them, and marketing it the right way. And we yeah, talked about that you still got to have them podcasting. dads there. You got to yeah. have them dads. You got to have them mentors. I mean, I get what Scott's saying. Oh, yeah. You know, single moms ain't going to take their kids out hunting because Some they don't know. Do. I mean, there's a few of them that do. Yep. But for the majority of them, and my hat's off to the ones that do. Absolutely. But for the majority of them, that's not going to happen because they don't know anything about it. And they got too much other stuff going on. Even yeah. If they did. They're out there trying to provide for their kids, you know, mm-hmm. any any means possible. And so uh, you got to have them father figures, whether it's uh, a blood father, a stepfather, or even just a mentor. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to have these guys that step up and get these kids interested and with so much information and and other distractions that's out there now, mm-hmm. you know, we didn't have all that when we was right that age. You know, right. I mean, we had one distraction, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, right. but you know what I'm it saying. It distracted some more than others. Yeah, but you know, it, it's just. Uh, and you know, we, we've gotten away. It from, didn't take that long. You could still hunt. We've got yeah, we've gotten away from the core values and the roots of not only hunting and fishing but just as a, a population in general i i really do believe that i believe that has a lot to do with things mm-hmm. and in that case the hunting industry has to do a better job of getting that message out to the father figures and the dads in to actually be that role model or whatever it is because like I said, there's that generation that we've already missed that we have to put the stuff in front of where they're going to get it. Then there's the generation of guys, you know, like Nate's age and a little bit older than him that have kids in their starting to get in their formative years where they need to be out there and doing that stuff with them that they all we also need to reach as an industry to explain to them how important that stuff can be and how fun it is. And and that's a thing I think a lot of people miss is that are against it or don't want anything to do with it, or they just don't know is how fun it actually is to get out there and do that. Uh, I, I was, go ahead. I'm going to use myself an example. Oh, Lord. <laughs> you guys all make fun of me about, you know, being, having three divorces and that's, no, we do not. Yeah, you do. I mean, <laughs> Where I mean, would he get that? I don't know. I don't have a clue. I mean, that's fine. But let me let me tell you this. I don't have kids of my own, but I have nine stepkids. Mm-hmm. You know, between the three divorces, I have daughters, stepdaughters, and I have stepsons. And every one of them I took out hunting with me. Mm-hmm. And guess what? Every one of them, almost every one of them hunts to this day because I took them out there. I, mm-hmm. uh, exposed them to the hunting lifestyle taught them what it was about and i've got uh stepsons from my first marriage everyone's out there deer hunting goose hunting and stuff and mm-hmm. it's because i took the time to take them out there and show them to them mm-hmm. i've got a stepson and stepdaughter from my second marriage both of them are active active bow hunters and and deer hunters you know whether shotgun bow hunting whatever and even now, 
with my last marriage, I've got uh, one my steps oldest stepson. You know, he's out there all the time fishing mm-hmm. and hunting. And, you know, because I exposed them to that lifestyle, I took the time, you know, to teach them and show them that. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I've personally I've dealt with some crap, but I've also been blessed in the fact that. I planted some seeds, mm-hmm. and I've got to watch them grow. Oh, you planted seeds, all right. No, I didn't because I never had any kids <laughs> of my own. But, you know. Right. I plant, it just didn't grow. I, I planted seeds, and, you know, I got to watch these kids grow and develop as hunters and human beings, mm-hmm. you know, and so it's rewarding to me. So, yeah, and that's the thing, yeah, too. And that's something nobody can take away from me, not their moms or anybody right. else. You know, that's just something I'm proud of is that I – I got to share that with these kids and watch them grow up as adults into hunters and stuff. Mm-hmm. And you introduced it to them, and they realized how fun it is. And I don't care who you are, unless you're just a total bump on a log or some bleeding heart that can't stand to watch anything die. If if you go sit in a tree or on the ground, whatever it is, and you shoot a deer, you shoot your first deer, your first buck. Man, there is no feeling in the world like that. I was listening to a podcast recently uh, with a professional baseball player, and he was interviewing another guy who had a really successful pitcher in the big leagues. He's got kind of his own hunting media thing going on, but he's pitched in the postseason on the biggest stage in sports with millions of people watching. I mean, more pressure than most people could ever imagine having on him, right? And he said killing his first buck was way more of an adrenaline rush, way more of a better feeling than being on the mound for a postseason Major League Baseball game on national TV in front of 50,000 people there live and millions of people on TV. So like I said, I, I don't... I'd like to have that to compare to. <laughs> well, I'm just saying he's got it. I'm, yeah, I'd like to have that to compare yeah, to. Yeah, he's got it. And he says that killing his first buck, I mean, night, there's no comparison. It was a better feeling to him than than pitching in a big league postseason game. That's why I say I don't care who you are. You just can't replace that feeling. And once you get it one time, man, you're chasing after it again and again. I think that's what gets people hooked. Well, that's just like with you. You know, I mean, it worked out that I, uh, you know, I took you hunting and you killed your you killed your first buck with me. Uh-huh. Oh, no, 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 no. Well, it's first, first buck with a bow. First buck with a bow. Yes. You know, uh, was a well, first buck with antlers with a bow. Yeah, you could. The let's let's, buck let's was, get this right now. Yeah, yeah. It was the first qualifying. The first buck. antlered buck with a no, bow. No, the qual- first qualifying buck was the yeah. grandpa. Was grandpa his grandpa his lawnmower store. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, which we've talked about before. Right, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. I remember. I, it was colder and crap that day. You want to go hunting? I said, all right, we'll go. I took him to his spot, and I said, okay, this is where these deer go through. I've been seeing deer and bucks go through, you know, five or six bucks at a time. Mm-hmm. There's this really nice buck. You know, he's a, what was he, a 10, I think. Yeah. And I said, you know, if he comes by, he'll be a really nice deer next year or another year or two. But, you know, if you can let him go by, fine. If not, take your shot and so later that evening as we were freezing to death right at last shooting light. right at last shooting light canyon text me 
I got deer coming my way. I'm like, yeah, I just seen them. Yeah, yeah. You texted me before that and said they were coming. Yeah, yeah. and then I heard, Whoop. <laughs> and he goes, I think I got one. <laughs> I said, I think I got a pretty good eight. Yeah. Uh, well, no, it wasn't. It was that ten part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Spoiler you know, alert: He's on the wall. In the <laughs> that's right. Spoiler I'm, alert: He is hanging on the wall. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't upset about that because the look on his face. I mean that. That was all it amounted to. Yeah, and by that time, I was already hooked on it because, you know, I'd had that yeah. those experiences as a kid where even just getting close to killing your first deer and you're up there shaking with adrenaline. Oh, you're shaking. Like, like I said, you can't. There's no replacement for that yeah. feeling that you get w- when you're doing it. And that's what gets people hooked, and that gets them into it. And then you start to teach them all the lessons that yeah. come with it and the ethics and everything like that and the values from it. But That's the first time you drove a foul license, too, wasn't it? <laughs> I think so. Maybe. I don't know. That I was far. probably 12 or 13. Huh? That far. That far, yeah. yeah. That was the first time I drove that truck without a license. Yeah. <laughs> with your deer in the back yeah. of it. Anyways, uh, so I think, you know, moral of the story, the, the things we can do, because like we talked about, the same things that boomed the archery and hunting industry back then are not the same things now. To me, and I think we've kind of hit it on the head, the biggest thing is the media getting in front of people and then preaching the right message to them, whether that be the young kids trying to get them into it, uh, the guys my age trying to get them into it that aren't now, or the guys that are of the generation before me, well, half a generation before me, getting their kids into it. Whatever message that is, we got to get that out there to them. And then I think that creates the more popularity. Because the more hunters, the better. It's going to be more people that share similar values. And are there some jerk deer hunters out there? Absolutely. There's a lot of bad ones. But I think the majority of them are good people, ethical people with the right values. They're living, you know, clean lifestyles, at least for the most part. Uh, and just, you know, general good people. And I think we can benefit from having more of that. And in my opinion, the more the merrier. So that's kind of what I wanted to talk about tonight. So we gave you guys a kind of a brief, long history on archery, at least through our eyes, and the industry, the archery industry, the hunting industry. Kind of some ideas, maybe what we can do to improve it. And we've talked about that on previous episodes, too. So you guys can go back and check those out. And, we, and we've talked to some of that stuff again a little bit more. But before we get out of here, I do want to mention our podcast sponsors. And that is plural because we do have the other one I mentioned set up finally. So we got a discount Woo-hoo. code for you guys there too. So the first one that we've been working with, you guys know about if you've been listening to this. It's Rack's Big Game Supplements. They're a veteran-owned company out of northeast Nebraska. They're deer hunters just like the rest of us who at the time, they wanted more out of the mineral and feed market than there was uh, offered. They developed Rack's products through years of research and came up with one of the best mixes available that'll improve your herd's overall health and not feeding those non-target species like we talk about. They've got minerals, protein blocks, pelletized feed, and meal feed all specifically designed for whitetails. You guys can use discount code RHO22, capital RHO22, at checkout to receive 5% off your entire order at RacksMineral.com, R-A-K-S Mineral.com. You can also stop by the shop and see what we have in stock or make an order for what we don't. Fixing to make an order the middle of this week. So if you guys want something, get a hold of us. Well, this will come out on Friday. So you've already missed that, but you guys can still order some stuff. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. And then, yeah. Better we'll make have, your order. Yeah, I got would that be a back to... order? Or... <laughs> yeah. We will have stuff in the store, though. So that'll be a plus. We'll have a little bit of stuff in the store. So 
The other one we got is Grandpa Ray Outdoors. And I know we talked about them a little bit a long time ago. We've used their stuff on some client properties. Um, they specialize in the best nutrition for white-tailed deer on your property, starting with the soil. They offer a full line of high-quality food plot seed and plant foods. They started in 2015, but John O'Brien, the main guy there, he's been in the seed and nutrition business since 1991. So back to that period we were talking about. He's got over 14 different food plot blends to choose from. You won't have any trouble finding what you're looking for on their website. They've got fall and spring blends, corn and beans, switchgrass, liquid fertilizer, soil test kits, uh, you name it, they've got it. They aren't just about selling their products, though. They'll answer any questions you have about what blends would be best for your specific property. That way you can achieve the best results possible. So if you've got uh, you know, a certain soil quality, uh, soil type on your property, the climate and all that, and you want to know what would be best for that, you can ask him, and then he'll, he'll let you know. Do you, you use that? Uh, did we put that down somewhere? Yes, we've used it on a couple guys. On a couple properties. In yep. Kentucky? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's yeah. What so like us, uh, John and the team, they don't believe in a cookie-cutter approach like we talk about all the time. Everything's different. Uh, they don't believe in that to whitetail nutrition. Uh, they'll treat you and your situation individually, just like us. So they aren't about fancy label or package. They're about good quality seed and taking care of their clients. So if you'll notice a pattern with our sponsors... We're not about the fanciest packages and everything. We're about what's in the bag that, that really matters and what you're going to spend on. You want good quality stuff. Got some good results out of those properties too, didn't you? Yep. That's yep. what I thought. So we've like, you hitting see on there. pictures if we were on video. <laughs> yeah. Can't see we, now I'm showing up. I'm holding a picture right now. I can see it. Yeah, we've so used their seed blends. Damn good. It's good. <laughs> we use their seed blends on client properties in the past, like what you're talking about. And the results have been as good as advertised. Uh, that's why we're going to continue to use their seed, and that's why we've partnered with them for the podcast. You guys can check them out at GrandpaRayOutdoors.com and use discount code capital R-H-O space capital P podcast to get 10% off your order. So if you guys want to check some of their stuff out, you can use that discount code and get 10% off. Or we do have a little bit of their stuff in the store right now. I think we've got some of their buckwheat, some of their sorghum, grain sorghum, there might be one other mix I have in there from them. I'm going to have some more stuff by them, too. And you can come by the shop and order it as well and save a little bit on shipping. But those are ways you guys can support us. So if you like the show, go there. Use those discount codes. Save yourself a little bit of money. Get some good quality products. And then that will help support us, too, so we can continue making this better as far as the video goes when we get that back up and running next week. The audio quality, all that good stuff. That's how you guys can support us. Other ways... Follow us on Spotify, go to Apple Podcasts, leave us a review, subscribe to the YouTube channel, comment on there if you want to, like our videos, you guys can keep up with us that way. Like us on Facebook, at Ridge Hunter Outdoors, we're on Instagram and Twitter as well, I don't use the Twitter much, but I do use the Instagram quite a bit, that's at Ridge Hunter OD, so you can... Well, our Twitter might be changing, I'm not sure. There's it already little, has. Well, there's something... Bigger and better. Yeah. No, there, there's something I can't remember, is that... Well, never mind. <laughs> yeah you guys yeah if you if you miss that i don't know where you've been under a rock or something <laughs> but you can also check us out at ridgehunteroutdoors.com where you can also order a lot of this stuff or you can get information for us about our consulting services or our management services and then if you have any questions you ever want us to cover on the podcast or any comments or concerns about it i don't know why you've been concerned about us but if well, you did have i'm any, concerned that jeff may have been shadow banned and that may be stopping by well that. what Shadow ban. Yeah. On Twitter. 
Oh, well, that's a possibility. <laughs> anyway, if you guys are concerned about <laughs> Jeff's shadow band, <laughs> send us a message Support through our me. website. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's all we got for this week. We appreciate you guys listening, and we'll catch you again next week.